The Historical Archives Committee of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA, is bringing you this interview with Patty Sheets conducted by Britta Smith and Debbie Struxma on Patty Sheets' career and time as president of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. The views or opinions expressed are those of the individual creators and do not necessarily represent the position of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Well, first of all, welcome. We're so glad to oh, see you. Oh, Patty. it's my pleasure. Thanks this for doing this. I'm sorry I had to move our time, so I appreciate that. We're, we're pretty flexible. <laughs> <laughs> so this interview is taking this. place with Patty Sheets and with Debbie Struxma and Britta Smith at Combined Sections Meeting in San Diego 2023. So welcome to our, our interview. Thanks. So our first question always yeah. is, why did you become a PT? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Well, I decided I wanted to be a PT when I was nine. Now, <clears throat> I have no idea. I had no idea what a PT did. There was, I grew up in a small town. There was one PT in my town. I had never had PT. I'd never known anybody who had PT. I had no idea what PT was. But somewhere I heard the job title. I knew it was in healthcare, and I thought, that's what I want to do. And I think, honestly, what it is is that I was a kid who needed a goal. You know, and so it served me really well because I knew that in order to get there, you know, once you start studying, what's it going to take to do that? I was going to have to do well in school, you know, and that gave me a direction, you know. So all through adolescence and, and high school, I had a clear goal, and um, and I actually didn't really understand exactly what I was going to be doing until my second year of PT school, you know? So, um, so I've often thought how fortunate I am that it was such a good match for, you know, because for me, it's the perfect combination of doing and thinking. You know, so I liked the, the problem-solving aspect of it and, um, and thinking through and the decision-making and all of that. I love that part. But then I also like the doing part, you know. So you think about, like, surgery and medicine, you know, where you've got the internists who do the thinking. You know, now this is a gross, obviously, a gross generalization, but more of that thinking, problem-solving side and the surgeon, more the do-it, fix-it side. I think in PT we get the best of both. So it's, I've often been so grateful that it proved to be such a good match for my personality and, and my interests, given that I decided to do it when I didn't really know what my interests were. So, Well, it seemed like early yeah. in your career you dived into quality and performance improvement and, and, and leadership pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, did your need for a goal drive this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what it was, you know, when my first job, um, I took my first job at WashU, and we had such a unique environment. The um, We were university employees, but we worked at the hospital. And um, the director of the PT school, who was Stephen Rose, were, was the director of the PT clinic as well. So, um, so we had this really... Uh, structurally tight connection between with the clinic side and the academic side and so all of the instructors that still kept their hand in treating patients and that were treating patients in our clinic and that was the time where trying to really view clinical practice as integrating you know as clinical practice as a way to do research like that you could study what you were doing and study the patients that you were seeing and learn from them um, that was really you know they were kind of at the forefront of that at that time and so very early on I began to kind of see that there was um, not only were there not only were patients as individuals and and those pieces, but when you you know when you looked at them at the aggregate, you could learn from them. So you began to think about how do you capture information about patients in a consistent fashion? Mm -hmm. How do you how do you assess patients in a consistent fashion? You know, so outcome measures were we they were still becoming more they were uh, becoming more. Uh, 
used in the research, but we weren't doing them in practice very consistently at all. But we had, you know, my boss had developed a measure, and we were, we were required to systematically do some measurement on patients, and that was very unusual at the time. So I think that because of those early days, I began to see that um, two things. One is that you could... Um, if you measured what was going on, you could learn from it and, and improve it. And that's kind of a tenet of performance improvement, mm -hmm. right? And then the other piece of that was that I really just began kind of my commitment that our practice should indeed be better. Like, we were doing okay now, but we needed to continuously be looking at how we could do better. So then I started kind of exploring you, you know, often the opportunities you get that come to you are supervisory in nature, right? It's operational in nature. And so I would kind of walk through those doors often because it just gave me the flexibility in my time. And so I would do the operational things that needed to be done, but it also gave me the influence with people to like, well, let's figure out how practice could get better, or, you know, and so that, that's, I always kind of turned those opportunities into the things that interested me, which were really more about performance improvement and practice improvement. Others in those roles might have really dug into like understanding budgets and the whole economics of things, and that's a great thing to do and learn about too. That just wasn't what got me as excited about the other. So that's, I kind of used them as an avenue to doing what I thought was really exciting, so. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, you became the the ANPT president. Okay, was that right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So at that time, what were your objectives going yeah. into that role? So, so I was on the board as vice president prior to my term as president. So I'd had a, a full term as vice president, which I had taken on because Sue Perry was the vice president before me. And at a CSM, she pulled me aside at the Milan Melter. And she, you know, it was her last year. And she said, I think you might like the vice president role because it's so related to practice. You know, that mm -hmm. the vice president worked with the specialization, the SIGs, um, the, um, the practice committee, you know. So uh, I think you might really like that. I never even thought about running for the board, you know, but I don't have to have doors like pushed wide open in front of me. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's great. I'll put my name in, you know, put mm -hmm. my name in there. And so uh, anyhow, so I had that. So I'd done one term and then just started the second term when the president's position was, and the nominating committee, I hadn't thought about running for president at all. And the nominating committee, uh, con a member from the nominating committee contacted me and said, have you thought about running for president? And I'm like, no, I'm the vice president. And they're like, well, why don't you think about it? You know, and, and so I... Um, I did, and I thought, you know, I, I, I could do that maybe, you know. So then, so then that was uh, how I moved into that, um, into that role. And what was so interesting, your question, Debbie, is we had the um, four-step meeting right after I was elected. You know, so mm -hmm. we, you know, we elect, <clears throat> and my turn, your term starts in July, and that meeting was in July. Said all these people coming up to me saying, "So now that you're the president, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, and what's your agenda?" And I didn't really have one. <laughs> How long did that take? <laughs> yeah. And so, and I kind of like was a little worried. I was worried anyway because I wasn't in the academic realm and I wasn't from research and our presidents have often come from both of those backgrounds you know I came from the clinic side of things and so I was anxious a little bit anyway about that but I also felt like we were at a time in as an association we had well established practices around education we were good at that and we had, you know, our our researchers and the depth that they brought. That was just escalating, you know. You know, I was, you know, able to watch that, and then so I felt like, well, maybe this was a good time for someone whose feet have always been kind of planted on the clinical side uh, to be in that role. So I decided just embrace your weaknesses, get, you know, seek resources, you know, and that. So I didn't really have a specific objective other than I 
wanted to be sure, and I think this is the case of always of our presidents of the academy, you just wanted to be sure that voices were heard, you know. And I did have a sense that, you know, we were, that was at the, we, the beginning of our really growth spurt. You know, we had, our membership had been growing prior to that. And we were just beginning where what we were doing, the breadth of our programming was really expanding. Um, and I just, what I wanted to be sure that, what was important to me was that we were kind of trying to think through some of our decisions as a board, you know. And a lot of what the president does is really just, in my view, you set the, you know, the biggest thing that I do is I run the board meetings, you know. And so through that, though, you kind of set the pace for time for conversation and things like that. So personally, I felt like I wanted to be sure we heard voices. I wanted to, I wanted to hear from all the voices, you know. So when board new board members came on, I'm like, I'm like, I need you to talk, you know. <laughs> even if that means I don't know what, even if it means you don't know what we should do, say I don't know what we should do, you know, just so that we can uh, engage there. And I wanted to set a pace of decision making that we were comfortable with, that we we just didn't get caught up in the flurry. So that I guess that's kind of what. I was thinking it was really more process. And then the board kind of set the, the pace, you know, the CPGs and then the commitment to knowledge translation. I mean, that's just, you know, has really expanded what the academy does. And then the position paper came out. And, you know, again, that came from the board to do that. And we had a lot of conversations about the right thing to do. And, you know, like now, I look at that and I'm like, it changed us, I think. Because really, for the first time in a formal way, as representatives of the academy, the board, like, we're in this camp, which meant we weren't in that camp. You know, like, that was, to me, that was the big thing. Like, when you take a position, it means you're going this direction, which means you're not going a different direction. And so that was a real, I think, one of a very concrete way in which the academy reflected its maturity as an association, where um, you kind of go, okay, this is a group of people who not only represent people who are caring for people with neurological conditions, which is kind of but also a group of people who are really kind of sort of standing for something and trying to ensure that they promote what everything they can to ensure that the patients get the best care that they that we know to give. So that's kind of the agenda, if you will, evolved from the board. I honestly didn't have one. <laughs> have you gotten some pushback on the position paper from the? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, by and large, the the position paper has been very well received. Um, that, at least that's my sense. And and uh, you know, in Eddie's and Shumway Cook yesterday, she kind of commented, made a comment about the um, you know, there's a, one of our sentences. She goes, "There's this one sentence, you know, <laughs> and that she had, and she had a great rationale and reason for why she kind of disagreed with this one sentence, you know, which I just thoroughly enjoyed hearing about. Um, but it, it, and then of course. There's, um, we've heard a lot of, well, yes, that's fine, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so, um, so that's been um, something that is, uh, ha has kind of, it, it, what all that actually means to truly be committed to the best evidence is still kind of challenging for some folks. And part of it is we still have holes in our evidence, you know, and I think that's important to acknowledge. Like there are still, um, aspects of care that haven't been studied um, and and so what that also says is when we make that position is we have to be open to new methods uh, or new new knowledge right for all of us the challenge um, to do that so um, so yeah I think there's some pushback um, at times I you know we watched membership 
to see if there was going to be an impact on membership. It doesn't seem to be the case. Um, of course, the pandemic came around in there too. We took a little bit of a membership loss during the pandemic, not as much as like APTA or some of the other from what other academies have reported. It sounded like maybe they took a little bit more of a membership loss. It looks like ours um, at least the second half of 2022, we're starting to rebound membership. So in that regard, it doesn't feel like people walked away, you know, to the best that we can understand it. And then, you know, the resources and things that I think the Academy is producing are very attractive to members. So um, I think it ruffled some feathers. Um, and... I don't think anybody on the board regrets doing it. Um, and probably more, at least the, of the feedback that's come to me personally, it's been way more positive than it has been um, negative. So to reflect on people mm -hmm. who might be listening to this in the future, what were things specific in the position paper that were viewed very positively as opposed to the things that were viewed negatively, or there was sure. some concern about that. Sure. Well, you know, the general statement is that, you know, our position is is that we should do deliver best evidence care, right? Right. And everybody accepts that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's like, well, yeah. But then we went on, and this is the piece that, you know, we spoke to, is that these are things for which that we traditionally do that, you know, the evidence does not support. And that's, you know, so that's when you start to kind of, there's the push-pull there, right? So yes, I want to deliver best evidence. And for each of us as individual practitioners, I think it's, we have in our own world, right, our personal practice evidence of the things that we believe have mattered. Right. And even, you know, Sackett talks about it's that that the, what the clinician brings as well as what the external evidence is. And um, and so it's being able to kind of take a step back. And that's where I think, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road is, is am I able to change some of my practice behaviors? Does that mean um, that I don't do the things that I love to do, that I believe work, even though the evidence doesn't suggest that it works. And, um, and so that's, that's where that dynamic is. Um, and, you know, we, we followed that up with courses. The board members have put together courses for teaching, um, for, you know, so that we've tried to expand those. There's a session here on de-implementation. And, you know, that's a big thing. The Evidence Elevates campaign is largely around stopping doing some of the things that are are not as successful and and that's hard you know my, my in my day job we do try are trying to integrate some of the best evidence practice for older adults and it's really challenging for folks um, and, and I, I guess in that work I guess I've learned that when you kind of bring a new idea it, it kind of it seems like it pushes on some people's sense of self and what they've contributed because they know that their patients have gotten better and they have and the question is with other strategies could the patients be better faster or could they be mm -hmm. more better you know purposefully mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. grammatically correct you know mm -hmm. like could they could they be even doing better than that um you know is there a value and then the other thing is is uh what do we waste their time you know, so that's like that whole value concept in healthcare that wasn't there when I first started practicing. So if we did something, you know, we haven't really looked as a profession, and I think this is true within this in our neuro group too. We haven't really been forced to, into really saying, okay, let's, you know, let's look at the things that might not be adding value and recognizing that they may be hurting in the long run. It's like it's not hurting the patient physically, but if it's wasting their time, if we're wasting dollars, mm -hmm. you know, what are some of the ramifications of that? So, so yeah. in, in one of your leadership positions, you wrote that um, you were tasked with resolving conflicts between a diverse group of people. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, it was nursing and therapies 
that we're all diverse and from back, different backgrounds. And um, it sounds like maybe some strategies learned from that interaction might have been uh, used in today's yeah. uh, leadership. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's the, the beauty of, of a career, right, is like some of those experiences in your first year, particularly on the interpersonal side, they help you build who you become for the next interaction and for the next interaction. And, and you just, I always think we, we hope that we get better and better at trying to manage and recognize those those challenges and some of those conflicts and things like that. The uh, experience of working with nurses as well as with therapy providers, you know, that's, that we've got kind of like two different animals, if you will, um, for the way they think and, and, and do things. And so that's uh, how do we how do we move forward through, through those things? You know, the, all, those, all those old adages about, you know, can, can both people win? It always feels like the conflicts are the most significant when you've got someone who feels like they're going to lose. And if you can figure out what they're what it is that they are concerned, what it is that they feel they're going to lose. And I'm not, I always think often it's that's not at the surface, right? Like they're not, you know, I'm just thinking myself too, when I've been like ruffled by something that's going on, I don't think I have at the surface, I feel like I'm going to lose something. That takes some reflection. So when you meet some of that resistance is trying to understand what might you lose and and how can we, is there a way we can shape where we need to go so that um, you can get on board as well? Um, yeah, I always feel like half the job is sales. <laughs> you know, like in, in my day job where we work on um, integrating these best practices, it's, you know, we spend a, a lot of time on, on the why and, you know, to what degree, you know, and I'm, I'm passionate about it, so it's not like I have to pretend in any way, but there's a lot of that, that message delivery that it's kind of like, can I bring you in? Can I help you see and feel this the way I feel it so that maybe that helps you um, make that change? Because it's not easy to, to modify those behaviors at all. Mm -hmm. And I think of that every time I'm struggling with something like, Okay, so we're not going to use Zoom anymore at work. We're going to use Teams, and that's where, like, so that's an example, right? In my everyday world, I hate Teams. <laughs> I can't find anything. What are all these pop-ups? <laughs> and so I remind myself that that's what it's like when our clinicians are trying to learn a new behavior, or for any of us as clinicians, is like you just took away the thing that made me really mm -hmm. smooth. And now what used to be smooth and easy is challenging and difficult. And I, and I, I feel myself, I'm like, I, I want to walk away from that because I felt competent over here and I don't feel competent over there. So those are nice reminders, like little things that I'm like, oh yeah, Patty, that's what you ask people to do every day. So remember that. One of the Besides the position paper, one of the things that has come up that you and the board have implemented is this idea of movement systems diagnosis. <laughs> Can you tell us where that came from and sort of the origins of that and where you think it's going to go? Sure, sure. I had to chuckle because, you know, this is a topic. I'm thinking, I've had some really long answers here. I'm like, you just opened up the gates, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the because I started my career at WashU, um, the movement system or our identity has been a big theme there. You know, Steve Rose was there, Shirley Sarman was there. And so, you know, after the Mary McMillan, Helen Hislop's Mary McMillan in 75, you know, they were all over this whole defining the identity. Dr. Rose wrote a lot about, you know, at that time they used the term pathokinesiology um, uh, or kinesiopathology, you know, so he wrote a lot about that. Uh, Dr. Dr. Saruman wrote a lot about that, and then, um, so, and, and Dr. Saruman's work, they had been working out these categories for musculoskeletal, and as it happened, I was the supervisor of all the acute care services in the clinic. The neuro was my first love, and then I also had the med surge and the cardiopulmonary, and, and so we were trying to, the it, it really is like the staff were like, well, we don't get to do all that fun, sophisticated stuff that the 
ortho folks are doing. So I, I just, and very early on in my career, Dr. Sarman had kind of planted a seed that when it came to like individuals who experience stroke and things like that, if you look at the spectrum with which they present, that it makes sense that there should be some treatments that would be completely contraindicated for one group that were completely indicated for another group. You know, and that was a, a concept that nobody thought of in that time, you know. So anyway, so I started trying to work out some of these ideas based on some of Dr. Sarman and Barbara Norton's early work. Um, I tried to lay, start laying out some of these categories myself based on the people that I was seeing. And, and, um, and then I, and I felt like I should try to, so we, we tried to lay them out and we tried it a few different ways. And, um, and so, uh, you know, then I would read more and then you'd kind of refine and things like that. So we had been, had developed a, a system of categorizing patients. And I think our, the first time I presented it was at a CSM in the mid-90s, and it wasn't as refined as it is now. And that's right when the first guide to physical therapy, therapist practice was coming out. Mm-hmm. And, and I, somebody came up to me after that presentation. It was this big, and at those times, you know, the, um, at CSM they had the plenary session, you know, mm-hmm. on the first day. And so I remember this like all the speakers, like Shirley was speaking, Barb Norton was speaking, Andrew Guccione was speaking, you know, and me. And I'm sitting there like they're all chit-chatting and moving around. And I'm like, I'm sitting there with my slides because they were slides on my lap just sitting there, you know, like not moving. So anyhow, so after the presentation, somebody came up who was on the, the PT practice, the, you know, the guide, um, and said, well, because we had kind of proposed these categories. And they're like, where were you when we were developing the practice patterns. I said, well, I applied. (laughs) So, so this is a, you know, so the, I guess my point is, is that my personal experience with this, this has been something that, you know, has been something that's been important to me for a long time. And then the interest waxes and wanes. So what's happened now relative to the time that I've been on the board is the identity statement and the, you know, associated with the vision, the mission from APTA, and the identity statement around the movement system. And so that, anytime APTA comes out with something like that, prior, the last big push was when they did the patient-client management model and they put diagnosis, but we don't have any diagnoses. You know, so in neuro in particular, we focused on the process. We had kind of said, well, here are some ideas, um, but we really tended to focus on the process rather than the put them in a category aspect. Anyhow, so that's really what brought this most recent push um, was really the APTA and the identity statement around the movement system. And, um, and so we... Uh, had proposed, you know, we were kind of getting on board a little bit with that. And then ultimately what happened within neuro is um, four-step was coming up. And um, they and Van Sant, the, the very first plenary session was going to be on the movement system. And I can remember one of the board members saying, we need a group of people to look at this because we don't, we don't have a collective vision around this. So, we, so in order to prep for four-step, we really need some people. So we had, uh, that's when they approved the, the formation of the Movement System Task Force. Hmm. And, um, and so then we've, it, it takes a while for folks to kind of get their minds wrapped around this concept because we're so used to organizing care around health conditions. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Um, so this group has worked. We, we left. We, we met yesterday, and I said, "Okay, who has the youngest children?" And because you know, we've seen some of the folks in the on the task force. Their kids have gone through high school and they've gone through college. <laughs> you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. So one of our met task force members, her youngest is six. I said, "Okay, if we're still meeting when, <laughs> when your child graduates from college, you know." So anyhow, yes. so so the group, you know, we. And what they've done really, really well is committed to writing papers that have talked about, you know, first, like, what what do they think we should do as an academy around the movement system? And then trying to, we, we, our charge was to develop a process for 
examination related to movement analysis of tasks and then to develop some sample um, diagnoses. And, um, and so now we're kind of at a stage, we have now the movement system, particularly around collaborating with geriatrics and peds is in our new STRAT plan. So we're gonna try to continue that work. We haven't exactly decided what's the process, how organizationally, how we're going to do that. But, um, and you know, the other thing is, APTA's attention to it has gone back down. I don't know if you've, you know, they're not talking about it at the APTA. And so we've been trying to, and um, Dr. Sarman's great about trying to explore, so what happened, you know? And, um, and you know, I, I think some of it is the, uh, it's hard to get everybody across all areas of the profession moving in the same direction, you know. So we're trying to to move it forward. That's why we think collaborating with Peds and and Jerry, and they're they're really excited about that. Then we can, if we can all get and move together. Um, I think that musculoskeletal is a little harder. I think that they've had there's they've had more resistance to the concept, so they're trying to figure out how to make that movement. And they're so big, right? Like they're big, such a huge part of the practice. So I think that's, if we can kind of figure out how to make these concepts be work for the majority of folks in musculoskeletal, I think it'll be a real win. And it's like they're trying to do the little things. So it has to get in the science because CPGs drives everything, right? Mm -hmm. So it has to get in the science. And so um, one of the gals I was in a meeting today talked about um, they're doing the revision of the a hip. I think it's hip, hip pain that's not OA um, CPG. And um, there's some new work that's, uh, Kara Lewis had done, no, Marcy Hayes had done, where they had categorized the patients. And so now that comes into the CPG, right? So then that helps that because that's part of the challenge is the literature isn't sorted by movement system problem. It's sorted by health condition. And so in some ways, our push toward evidence-based practice pulled back on the emphasis on the movement system because now we're out searching the literature, all good things. I hope that nobody misunderstands what I'm saying, but the literature isn't organized that way. So those two things, you know, we have to get the concepts into the literature. I was just had a, a meeting right before this um, um, with a gal who's got some data on MS patients. And, um, and so we were talking about MS is a great health condition to emphasize the need for movement system problems because the clinical presentation is so variable. So she had contacted me. I'm like, uh, Sherry Bunyan, and I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. <laughs> and so we were just talking about maybe ways that, you know, can they use their data to identify at least some motor sensory categories that, you know, profiles essentially. And then if they can do that, you know, it's not a big step then to think about for all science going forward in that health condition, it's categorized by profile and look at people who respond versus people who don't respond. And is there a difference based on that movement profile? And you can imagine if they, if this was generally accepted, that these movement profiles exist, you could see like these are the kinds of interventions that we're going to try over here and different ones by movement profile. So anyhow, that's pretty exciting. So I, I, this is a really long answer, I, but I prepped you that it was going to be a long <laughs> answer, didn't I? Okay. okay. Um, so I think that um, there are enough of us now in neuro who think this is a pretty are pretty passionate about it that we can kind of keep moving. And you know, neuro is a great place to do this because we can do details like nobody else. We do. I mean, we're good at details. And that's what it takes. I mean, to get some of these descriptions of these categories worked out and what does that actually look like? What are the movement observations? If you did a standardized test, what, what are the item levels? You know, how's it going to look for this category versus that category? That's very detailed work. And not everybody has the same tolerance for that type of work, but we're really good at it. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that we can keep moving. 
So then long term, way down the road, do you see then if this idea holds yeah. that we have this crossover between, you know, orthopedic and neurologic camps because it's based in the movement system? Yeah. I. So Probably. that's a great question, Debbie. So this would be my thinking would be if we can get this, that you would have a diagnostic, we would have a diagnostic manual that would, and the, you know, in my own world of thinking about it, there'd be like a neuro, neuromuscular conditions where the problems are as more about mobility and activity. And then maybe there'd be the cardiopulmonary kinds of things where it's just more about capacity for movement. And then the musculoskeletal might be more about, you know, when I move, it hurts, you know, kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and now that's way too generalized. Mm -hmm. But, you know, because I do think we've got different levels of specificity of movement observations. Like our observations are largely at the task level um, because we're not... I mean, yes, our patients develop musculoskeletal pain, but that's, you know, that, that's not the driver often in why they can't get out of bed. You know, the, a large portion of our patients are here because they can't accomplish everyday limit, you know, activity limitations. And what I think would be helpful, we also have patients who I think are at risk for development of those musculoskeletal problems. And that's where I think the specificity, you know, that's where, because you could say, well, you could just categorize them along an activity limitation measure. But that's not specific enough to think about what are the secondary movement com complications that you're going to have because when you move, you move this way. And, um, and so that's what I think would be really cool. So we'd have a diagnostic manual and we'd have some agreement on, you know, what category the patient would go into. I, I think, it, and it doesn't have to be perfect for it to be useful. I mean, think about medicine. They are always refining the way they understand a health condition, right? Even ones that they've known about, you know, so like, oh, okay, well, now we've got subtype A, B, and C because the science evolves, the, you know, all of that. So they're, they didn't do a once done, you know, but just because they didn't think it was, or maybe, the, maybe they didn't not do it simply because it wasn't perhaps encompassed everything. Um, so I think they're, a, they're in that regard, they're a good model for us because they believed that you needed to figure out what was wrong with the person before you started treating them. We jumped to treatment, you know. So anyhow, that's what I, if I think it's full, for me, if it's fully realized, I think you, we, would, we would have this diagnostic manual and then we would get even up here on the prevention side where we would identify these are the movement patterns that are likely to produce pain in runners. You know, mm -hmm. these are the movements. So, like, and it's movement pattern, name it, you know, kind of a thing. I was so struck by um, in Eddie's um, Mary McBillan, you know, the thing about biomarkers and the decreased arm swing, potential biomarker for Parkinson's disease. You know, think about this, the power of those observations and, and what, anyway. So that's, that's what, I think that's the other p key piece is our skills at movement observation. And, you know, you see it. You see folks that are walking around the community. I'm like, okay, that's a total knee waiting to happen, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so we have a skill set that's pretty unique in that. And probably in the long run where it could be potentially the most valuable is in the prevention side of things. But mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you have another question? I do have another question that left me, which okay. is amazing. I'm sorry, my answers are too long. Is, this, is that what it is? <laughs> I apologize. We're going to cut this part about our, our failings. So. Um, I really wanted to know, what do you do for fun? Oh, gosh. I hate this question. <laughs> you hate this question? No. No. I have a really fun husband. And so uh, he's really entertaining. He's just funny, and he um, he's musical, and he does art things, and he reads everything. And that's so honestly one of the things I, that I do the, for the most fun is I spend time with him. And I'm just I laugh every day because he's just just fun to be with. So that's a big part of what I do for fun. Um, 
Other than that, I have a pretty simple life. You know, I kind of like to ride my bicycle. I walk the dog. You know, <laughs> I, um, you know, try to do the exercise thing and, you know, all of those kinds of things. You know, participate in family things. I, do, I like to do a little travel, but I live a pretty quiet life. I'm not one of those... Unlike most people in PT who kind of got here through athletics, you know, I don't have those skills. So, um, I mean, I like to be out and about and do things, but I'm not particularly skilled with things with rackets and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, and, you know, I like to go to the, to the, sh to the theater and you know, all of those kinds of things. But I live a pretty quiet life. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we usually save this next question for the end, but I, I'm – just to bounce off of that, uh, what would you say to a new physical therapist coming in, maybe just finished school? Wow. I think what I would say is, it's hard to think about a single thing mm -hmm. um, that I would say. I think one of the things that I would say to them, though, is to hold on to what you were taught to do. You know, like I think we're in a situation where, sadly, Clinical practice doesn't always illustrate what our best practice is. Mm -hmm. You know, I think some of the pressures of day-to-day -day practice um, kind of strip away some of the expertise that we are actually taught to do. Um, and it's pretty easy to just fall into, this is what I need to do to get my job done. And, and if I don't see a lot of attention to detail or I don't see, you know, higher intensity effort or I don't see this, um, I think that it's, you know, it's kind of an individual, like do, as at an individual level, are you somebody who can like stand out on the pier by yourself a little bit, you know, and not all of, not all of us comes with the same kind of, set of stuff to be able to kind of go against the tide a little bit. And I feel like in order to change practice, we actually need those new clinicians who've had the benefit of learning from where, what's best in evidence to kind of go against the tide if they have to and hold fast to what they were, you know, what they were really taught to do. I, and, and, and then the other side of that is on the academic side, I think we have to commit to helping them figure out ways to do that efficiently. You know, like I always tell folks who are instructors, I'm like, if you need your folks to do movement analysis, like we want our folks to do movement analysis, recognize the EMR is not going to help them. So can you give them a cut and paste template that they can keep on their laptop or their desktop and cut and paste it in so that they can do it? You're like These are really pragmatic things in my mind, but recognizing where are the gaps and the tools that clinicians have to interact with, and in, until those tools get better, what can I give my students so that they can function and not bring it down to the level of the tool that they're working with? So, um, so I think that that's that my biggest piece of advice would be to hold fast <laughs> to what you were taught to do, and and then um, and, and I and I think some of you know technology familiarity with the technology, particularly just computer technology, EMR. New grads, what we see at least, new grads just pick that up so quickly. And if they have those tools, they'll use them. Really, whereas someone like me might fumble with that a little bit more because that's not my first way I learned to do things. Um, the, they'll be able to be very quick with all of those things. I think that's the piece: is um, holding fast, and then in their training. What can we do in how we teach? What can we tools can we give them so they're more prepared for an environment that may not support them doing that style of work efficiently? So then for someone who's in the midlife of their career that's supervising those people, because you have quite a wealth of experience supervising yeah, that right, group, right? right? Exactly. What advice do you give to that 
yeah. to that group in the midlife of their right. practice. Right. Well, and that for me is they're in the position to help figure out how to make the tools better. Okay. You know, that's I think of how many times we just launched new content in our EMR. I think this is the fourth time in my career I have written content for an EMR. And before that, I changed forms, paper forms. So, like, it sounds, and in a million years, I never thought I'd be this, like, documentation hound. Because, you know, I was trained at the time where, like, you were there to treat the patients, and then the documentation was the stuff that didn't matter. And now I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, I one, the documentation has to matter. And now, and for many years, I've been like, the documentation, because that's what they have to do every day, it has to help them be a better decision maker. It has to help guide them, you know. So I think that in that, you know, those folks in those supervisory roles are in a position to be able to help build tools if they don't already have them. And, and, and it's going to largely be around whether it's maybe a knowledge tool, you know, here's, here's, you know, how many reps to failure is 60% 1RM versus 80% 1RM, you know, <laughs> like here's a tool. Got it? You know, here's here's a heart rate calculator. Here's a this or here's a that. Um, so to helping to develop tools and then or, you know, things like this that help them get it documented um, quickly. Um, that that to me is is, a, is something that they can do and because they know their systems they know what their clinicians the advantage that they have to any over anyone else is they know what the everyday work of those clinicians is like so helping to kind of take a step back and not just live with what they were given but how do i figure out how to improve this so it helps the clinician do their job more effectively mm -hmm. Now, I see the barriers to some of that is is the time with the patient versus time on documentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's the, um, you, you know, I mean, our style has been to try to provide structured data. Again, one of those things I learned in my very first job, I remember Barbara Norton saying, well, what you want to do is, you know, how do you figure out how to structure the data um, so that you're giving forced choices, options, things like, did you see this, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of that with the whole, um, when we were developing diagnoses too. It's like, here are some movement observations that frequently happen. Did you see any of them? So it's a lot easier for our clinician, for example, to do a matching. I just watched the patient move, and then here are a list of things that frequently happen. It's much easier for me to match what I just saw to a pre-populated list of movement observations, and it is for me to figure out how to describe what I just saw, you know, kinematically. So that's an example, I think, that what is just an example from some of my own work that we've tried to figure out how to do is even take that task of movement observation and can we structure some data around that so that folks can start, boom, I saw it and I got it written by hitting a click. Um, that's the, kind of the idea, at least in my mind. That's, that's been the, what I've tried to focus on. I'm sure there are many other ways to go, but that's, mm -hmm. that's been an approach we've used. So in the next few years, ANPT, yeah. what direction are we going to go in? Oh, wow. I think, you know, we're at such a fun time. Um, I think our, uh, we have grown so much in both the breadth of things that we're doing and in the depth. And so it feels like right now, just from an organizational perspective, is, you know, it's like a house that we kept building rooms onto, you know. So I think that that's um, figuring out how to manage the machine, if you will, is, and are we organized in the right way to do what we want to do? Our members seem to take a lot of value from what the academy is doing. We have 
one of the most engaged group of people that I've ever had the experience to work with, you know, and, and across all stages of our career, you know, it's like we've got folks who are just new and they're getting involved and we've got folks, you know, we've been around a while and we're involved. And so I, I think that's tremendous. And, um, and we're having to, we're trying to figure out that, that organizational piece. You know, fortunately, the folks who um, came before me, you know, we have a pretty nice right now investment picture. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's something that not all of the sections and academies have. And so one of the greatest challenges for the board is to figure out, you know, what do you do? You know, <laughs> so we've, we've said very specifically, we're in this strategic um, time and, and, and it's really hard to decide, like, um, do we need to, like, how long does that last, you know, and, um, and that. So I think that that's, to me, that's going to be one of the, our greatest challenges is how do we organize ourselves to support the work that's so meaningful? What does that mean we need from an administrative support? And are we comfortable with that? You know, we've... Um, one of the things that's very different, you know, when you think about us as an academy, we've always been a, like, work, we're a worker bee type of group, you know, and when, even at the board level, you know, and, and they'll always tell you in boards that you want boards to be kind of up here, and we get up there, but we still really care about a lot of the details, and that's just kind of who we are. I think it's our culture. And I also think it's why we all stick around so long, because through this work, we find something that's important that we feel is adding value to and helping others. So I think we can't lose that. And, um, and, and I don't think we will. I think it's so embedded in who we are. But um, I, we're just at that stage of like, whoo, we just grew this whole animal, and now how do we manage it? And, um, and so the next strat plan will do some governance review. We'll kind of look at operational pieces. Um, I think trying to figure out, you know, is the best use of the investments to just keep on this general strategic path and use them as we need them to support that, or do we do something bigger with that? You know, those are decisions that I think the next, over the next 10 years, the boards are going, the members of the board are going to be dealing with. And then, who, the other thing that I learned is like in, when I started in my role on the board, I could have had no, I, I had no idea where we would have been in 10 years, you know, so just being open to see where it all goes, I think is, is helpful too. Mm -hmm. Good deal. Do you have any more questions? Mm -hmm. I don't either. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank, thank you guys. I feel like I really talked too much. You guys should have talked more. That's, that's not the point. <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> nope. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the Historical Archives Committee. For more information on this committee and ANPT, visit www.neuropt.org.